We're continuing our Romans series today, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans. We'll be in chapter 8. If you have your own Bible, and if you don't, encourage you to grab one of the Bibles under the chair so you can uh, follow along with us. Uh, We put those there to kind of get you used to handling a Bible and looking at it for yourself. We we would love for you to be comparing what I say with what the text actually says, um, because we center our understanding of who God is around what his word tells us. So we'll be in Romans chapter 8, and in those black Bibles, it's page 944. Page 944 in the black Bibles. Uh, Just to let you know, I I twisted my ankle, so I'm kind of limping. I didn't want you to worry about me. Sometimes it can be distracting if I'm looking weird, right? So yes, I do look weird. It's because I'm favoring a leg, uh, but I'll be okay. We train our uh, nursery workers in medical technique, and so I had one of them check my foot, and she said it was okay. There was still a pulse or something, so... Um, Seriously, there was a nurse in the nursery, but um, we're going to be in Romans 8, and we're calling it Life by the Spirit. I want to set the stage again for you. Thank you to Stephen, who preached last week. He got us kind of kicked off on our getting ready for Easter season of the year, this lengthening of days. Christians traditionally call that period Lent, the 40 days before Easter, and so we're spending a time as a church in prayer for that, and he preached for us from Acts chapter 4, which showed the church uh, in the first century unified in prayer. So I want to thank him for that. Also, congratulate Stephen when you get a chance. They just had their fourth baby. Um, Yeah. Little Nathaniel Owen. He looks like a chubby little fat happy baby. He was having some breathing problems, but I think most of that's all taken care of now. I'm looking at Mike. Is it, are they out yet? Are they still there? Today, going home. So yeah, things are looking good there. So congratulate them when you get a chance. Um, Lately, I have been watching a TV show that you might have heard of. It's called 24. Have you ever heard of this TV show? And I'm actually watching the old episodes because I've got Amazon. So, you know, it's a free show. What it is is it's this action-adventure show, kind of a spy, counterterrorism guy saving the world. And it happens in real time, 24 episodes, and each represents an hour of the day. So that's where the name comes from, 24-hour day. And it's an interesting show. And You know, sometimes it's ridiculous and sometimes it's entertaining, kind of, you know, give or take, depends on the episode. Um, I was noticing as I watched it that, of course, each episode is a cliffhanger. Um, There are other things that also happen in each episode. Uh, There's lots of shooting. That happens in every episode. Um, There's also someone who dies in every episode. And I've noticed that almost every time someone dies, there's someone kind of beating them, saying, wake up wake up, don't die on me, uh, kind of commanding them to live. And it just occurred to me, I I don't want to make light of this in reality. If if you are a medical professional, I know there's there's real emotion when you're trying to revive someone. So that's, that's right and good and appropriate. It just occurred to me, we can't make someone come back to life by yelling at them, right? Like that doesn't actually work. We cannot command life. And that's what we're trying to do when we think we can go to God's law and thereby give ourselves the life that we lack. We, we know we're sinners, and we think, I'll just go to the law, and I will, I'll just command myself. I'll just do it. I'll just be righteous. I'll just be holy. I'll just live differently now. And Paul said again and again throughout Romans, it doesn't work. The command shows us that we're dead. It doesn't give us life. Today, Paul's going to show us where the life comes from, right? Where does the life come from? If we can't give ourselves life, by our flesh, by just, just making ourselves do what's right, how do we get life? Well, Paul's going to say we depend on the Spirit. So let's read together 
It's chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. This is, this is often referred to by a lot of people as like the coolest chapter in the Bible. Um, sometimes they say best or greatest, but this is a chapter that people love. So we're going to be in it for a few weeks. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 starting off here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really good news. I'm going to just read that first verse again. Okay, you ready? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, commended, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let me pray. We believe that when we learn from God's word, it is a supernatural act that requires the spirit that Paul was just speaking about to open our minds, to teach us, to change our hearts. So let me pray and ask God to meet us here. God, we pray that your spirit would help us to hear your word, to understand your word, to, to live it out. God, we confess as a people, we've turned to so many other options, but you and we now are coming to you in faith, in hope, trusting you to transform us through the work of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look through the text, there's a, a logical progression that Paul moves through here as he describes what this looks like for us to live out this life in the Spirit, because the Spirit is invisible, so we need maybe some handles, some, some more concrete realities to, to understand what does this mean to actually live by the Spirit, to trust the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. And the first thing that I want us to see as we move through the text is that we should be rehearsing the facts of the Spirit. There are facts that the Spirit wants you to know, to call to your mind. There are uh, realities, propositional truth. One of the ways that people often say it is that Christianity is not just facts, but it is based on facts, right? We would say we've got to start with some of these facts. We have to rehearse these facts, understand these facts, and how they change our situation. So again, in verse 1, we see that great verse, which I would encourage you to memorize. In Romans 8, 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a big, bold statement. Paul just spent, if you remember, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, all of chapter 7 talking about this struggle and this inability to do what's right, this hating what I do. 
And if you've experienced that, whether before you began to follow Jesus or even as most of us know as we follow Jesus, this frustration with our own inability to in our flesh and in our own strength to do all the time what's right, as you struggle with that, you sometimes come to an end of yourself. Paul stated it like this. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And now he's saying, Jesus. Jesus will rescue you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You might feel the condemnation. You might hear condemnation. And so you need to rehearse the facts that there is actually no condemnation. If you remember earlier in Romans, a couple chapters ago, we talked about this idea of reckoning or considering the reality. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. It's a reckoning, a rehearsing of this truth that God is telling you. And the world, your own flesh, and the accuser himself, the evil one, will give you a different message than this one. So you better learn this and rehearse this and tell yourself this and preach it into your own heart. He goes on to explain it in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the law, the, the principle, the power at work, there's this one power of sin and death that's at work, working with God's holy law. And we've seen that over several weeks. God's law is holy. His commands are good. But God just saying, be good, doesn't make us good. When we look at God's commands, it actually shows us how bad we are. We look at it and go, I'm not good. God tells me to do this, and I'm not doing it. And we can either despair Or we can say, forget it, I'll just do my own thing, right, and throw God's law out. Or we can do this other option that is very dangerous where we lie and start to act like we're actually keeping his law, right? So repeatedly throughout Romans, we've said, you can't save yourself by the power of your own flesh. And the two ways that we try to save ourselves by our own flesh is one, we indulge our flesh and say, I'll just feed my flesh and follow my own desires. Whatever I desire must be good, must be right. You've probably heard your friends say things like that. God put this desire in me, it must be okay. Reality is we, we all know and have seen this in people's lives that when you follow your desires, sometimes your desires are wrong. And sometimes that hurts you. And so we need to go to God and understand his law, his commands about what are good desires and what are bad desires. So you can't just indulge your flesh and find life there. If you try to save yourself by just following your flesh, following your desires, it's not gonna work. That's often called the non-religious way of salvation, right? Then there's this religious way of salvation that Paul's repeatedly said also does not work. Religion doesn't work. Law doesn't work. Just being a good citizen doesn't work because none of us are strong enough. That's the other way of trying to save ourselves by our own flesh, saying, I and my strength will keep the law and do what God says, and then God will have to bless me. And weirdness starts to happen where you start to lie about the things you're failing at and cover them up, and you start to puff up the things you're doing well, and this leads to all kinds of dysfunction in religion that we've all experienced. We've all been those kind of dysfunctional religious people and known those kind of dysfunctional religious people. Paul's pushing us to this third way, which he calls the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so there's this law of the spirit of life that gives us life. And there's this law of sin and death that brings death. Verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't save us because our flesh can't save us. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, 
He condemned sin in the flesh. So what God did was he sent Jesus as a substitute. Sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does that mean Jesus was sinful? Well, no, likeness just means he sent Jesus in the form of the flesh to be a substitute for all of us who are in the flesh and sinful. Hebrews 4.15 makes it very clear that Jesus was tempted in every way like us. He's a sympathetic high priest. He's a fleshly real person, knows what it's like to be us, yet without sin, right? So here he's just saying he, he was in that form. He knows what it's like to live in the broken world and the broken flesh that we live in. Jesus had a body that broke down like us. Jesus lived in this world of temptation like we do. He just never sinned, okay? So he's saying he was sent as a substitute. He came and lived the life that you and I lived. I I like to say it this way with friends. Jesus didn't cheat. And this, you'll have to read the Gospels through four or five times to really start to get the impact of this. But Jesus lived as one of us. He really did. We believe he was fully God and fully man, but he lived as fully man. He lived as one of us. He's been through what you've been through. He just didn't sin. So, so he came and he lived the life we should have lived. He loved people. He stood up for people. He cared for people. He made right choices. He was angry at the right time and sad at the right time, right? We get all those things all mixed up. So he was a full human being yet without sin. And he became the substitute for us. He condemned sin in the flesh by dying in our place. This is speaking to the substitutionary atonement is the big word for that, that he took our place. What it means is that we deserved condemnation, but Jesus took our condemnation. So Jesus was condemned and we're not condemned. So our sins placed on him on the cross and his righteousness is given to us by the power of his resurrection through his Holy Spirit indwelling us. All you have to do is is trust him, believe him, say, "I I can't save myself, Jesus, I need you. And he says, okay. And he comes in and he, he gives you his righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about here. And we need to rehearse these facts because we easily forget them. Because this is the foundation of everything else. As I said, Christianity is not just facts, but it is built on these facts. And we need to rehearse these facts. I grabbed a picture here of someone uh, investigating a crime scene. And so when an investigation takes place, they will compile evidence, right? Here's an FBI agent putting together evidence being very careful to put together a case. There will be times in your life, often it's frequent, when you hear the voices of condemnation and you need to compile a case. What's really encouraging is to know, as it says in 1 John, that Jesus is our advocate that speaks up for us before the Father. He's the one that steps in and wins the case for us. But in the life of your mind, in your daily life, you need to rehearse that case that Jesus has already made for you. You need to know that case that he's made for you, that he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. We're going to talk about the same intercession concept later on in Romans 8, where it's going to say the Spirit actually intercedes for us. When we're trying to pray and we don't know how to pray, the Spirit comes in and helps us again, making that case for us, supporting us, being our advocate. Do you know these facts? I think most of you would say, yeah, okay, I know that. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. But do you know it? Like deep down in your heart, do you live out of that reality? When the voices of condemnation come in, whether it's voices from your own past, your childhood, voices from your own standards, voices from other people in your life, voices from the evil one himself, voices from the world system that speaks condemnation into your life, the case is, yes, I have failed, but Jesus took care of it for me. 
Jesus took my sins for me. He's given me his righteousness. Rehearse the facts of the case. Know the truths of this case. As you know these truths, it'll transform you. When those voices of condemnation come, uh, Chris Webster, our worship pastor, posted this idea the other day on social media somewhere. I had to ask him about it because I couldn't find it, right? There's too many different places that those things go. I can't keep track of it. But it was a great quote. And Chris said it this way. He said, hope, our hope, lies where we go when we feel hopeless. And what he means by that is the hope that you're actually leaning into. So think about it this way. When you feel hopeless, where do you run to? When you feel voices of condemnation, where do you run? If voices of condemnation send you to the bottle, then that's your hope. If voices of condemnation send you to relationships, then then that's your hope. If voices of condemnation send you to check uh, your uh, accounts online and make sure all the money is situated well in your life and reassure yourself that way, well, then that's where your hope is. When you feel hopeless, when you hear condemnation, where do you run? This is saying you should run to Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that can save you. Those other things can't save you. And so part of the Christian life is throwing those hopes off and and replacing our hope in the real reality, rehearsing the facts that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the world and the flesh and the devil are going to batter and hammer against us to say, no, trust in these other things. And you say, no, no, you need to rehearse the facts. You need to go back through. We, We saw it earlier in Romans, this reckoning, this considering. Consider yourselves dead to Christ Jesus, uh, dead to sin, and alive to Christ Jesus. So go back over the case. Rehearse the reality. Rehearse the facts of the Spirit. Christianity uh, is made of these facts, and I would say it's really good to memorize this verse, memorize other verses of Scripture, maybe put it on a card, maybe put it on the screen of your phone or your computer, or put a sticky note on your mirror put a sticky note in your car, write these things down so that you can remind yourself, so you can go back to them and find life as you're renewed, as you rehearse the facts, the reality of the hope that you have in Jesus. Build from there. Um, I know some Christians that get confused about all the different doctrines and all the different teachings. Um, Start with these foundational doctrines, right? Start here and build out from there. It's helpful as you learn and understand the Bible that you build on the really clear foundational doctrines, the foundational truths, and then you kind of work out in concentric circles from there. A lot of things in the scriptures are confusing, but Paul is hammering again and again and again, week after week for us, that your flesh can't save you. You can't save yourself by the law. You can't save yourself through enjoying your sin. You can only be transformed, be saved, be renewed, have your condemnation taken away through Jesus himself. So when you hear the voice of condemnation, you know where to run. I want to address some of you that don't hear that voice. Some of you don't hear that voice of condemnation, right? Some of you might be thinking, Dave, you're so melancholy. I don't hear these weird voices in my head. I don't, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I think there's a couple of reasons maybe you don't hear the voice of condemnation in your own head. One reason you might not hear that voice of condemnation in your head is because you've built a life of rehearsing these facts, right? And I would say, good on you, right? Like, keep going. Keep rehearsing the facts. As you rehearse the reality that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, it will affect your feelings. You will hear those voices less and less, be condemned by those voices less and less. You will feel more and more free. And that's a beautiful thing. I would call that growth. Some of you don't feel that condemnation 
because you're numbing yourself with those other false saviors. And I would say, I have bad news for you. They're not going to work. It's just a matter of time before you come to rock bottom and recognize those other saviors, whether it is the bottle, whether it is your own strength of your flesh, your own ability to perform, your own ability to do things right, those other saviors are going to fail you eventually. Remember this truth in Romans 8, 1, so that you can come back to it when you fully realize the extent of the bad news. The last thing, or the next thing that we want to see is this idea of walking by the Spirit. Um, He uses two phrases he talks about in verse 4, walking this out, and that's a common phrase in the the New Testament is when you walk the Christian life, it's like just walking through your daily life. And then there's a phrase he uses about uh, setting your minds on the things of the Spirit or living according to the Spirit, minding the Spirit is the way it's translated sometimes. And so he's just talking about this process where we learn to live this out, right? Uh, We rehearse the facts, the facts are foundational, and then we we live out of those facts. We talked a couple of weeks about this uh, imperative and indicative, right? There's an indicative, this is true, and then there's an imperative, therefore do this, right? Because Jesus loves you, therefore obey Jesus, right? And so this process then is beginning to be unfolded here by Paul, starting in verse 4. Look at verse 4, we're talking about walking by the Spirit. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, in order that, what's he talking about? Well, he's, he's talking about all the facts that we just reviewed, right, in the beginning, The facts were that Jesus has taken our sin. He's taken care of the sin problem. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So all this has taken place. Why? In order that you might actually be good. That's what he's saying. That's that's the Dave translation. Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you might actually be good. Let's read it again, verse four. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So remember, all along, Paul keeps saying, the law can't save you. The law can't save you. All the law does is say, this is righteousness, and you're not doing it, right? Here he's saying, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus, can save you and actually allows you to begin doing the good things in the law. That doesn't mean you're perfect. That means you just begin doing what's right. The the way the New Testament says it other, other places is, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because God in Christ forgave you. We're patient with each other because Jesus was patient with us. So there's this process by which this reality begins to change the way we actually walk through life. We begin to start looking like righteous people. And that's the crazy thing, because the people that try so hard to just do it on their own and be righteous by their own flesh, their own strength, as I said earlier, this this kind of hypocrisy starts to set in, where you magnify what you've done right, and then you lie about where you failed, and it begins to make you into a mask-wearing person. Jesus used that word again and again for the religious people of his day, you hypocrites, which literally means mask-wearer. Because there's now no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, we can confess our sins and move on and actually start living righteously. And when we fail, it's not the end of the world. We don't want to fail all the more, right? Paul said that earlier. We don't try to fail, so grace will abound. We try to do what's right, but, but when we do fail, say, that was wrong. That was stupid. Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. We can move on and, and live and walk out this newness of life. So we're walking by the Spirit, walking out this new reality. Look at verse 5. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And again, if you've read Galatians, if you've been with us, the other things we saw earlier in the Roman series, you recognize how really offensive this is that Paul is saying to religious people that are trying to keep the law and trying to be good on their own. He's saying, you can't. You're hostile to God. You can't actually just nug it out and be righteous and just do it by your own strength. It's, it's going to push back and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite you. It's going to bring death in your life. You can't save yourself by your own flesh. You've got to rely on the Spirit. Um, as we think about the analogy of, of walking, this analogy that's used often in the Scriptures, uh, I grabbed a picture of someone going through physical therapy here. Uh, some of you actually are physical therapists. And what you do is when you come alongside people and help them to heal, right? Help them to recover. And so we have this picture here that the Spirit lifts us so that we can now walk in newness of life. The opposite of that is us saying, I will lift myself, and I will lift myself. I will walk, and then the Spirit will have to bless me. Do you see how we reverse that and how we get that mixed up? One is me doing it in my flesh, saying, if I, if I pay in enough with my flesh, right? If I indulge my flesh enough, that's the non-religious way of doing it. If I pursue pleasure enough, then the universe will have to bless me with a happy life. Or the religious way of doing it. If I, by my flesh, keep enough rules, then God will have to bless me with the happy life. The gospel says, Jesus took your sin and he gives you freely. It's a free gift. He gives you life. Now walk as if that is really true. Now live it out. Walk by the Spirit. So the Spirit is supporting us. You're, you're depending on the strength of the Spirit. Here she's leaning on um, bars, right? She's leaning on railings. She's got physical therapists supporting her. And I believe that's a good picture of what the Christian life looks like. We are walking. We are straining. We are struggling. We are sweating to do what's right. But if we're walking by the Spirit, we're doing it in dependence on the Holy Spirit, knowing we can't actually, we can't actually pull this off on our own. It's just because of what Jesus has done for us. That's what empowers us. That's what keeps us going. As we think about this peculiar phrase here, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, I thought uh, one of Tim Keller's observations was helpful in his commentary on Romans. He talks about, well, what does that mean then to put your mind on the Spirit, like the Spirit's invisible? What does that mean? Well, he says later on in Romans 8, in context here, our chapter we'll get to in the next few weeks, says these are the things that the Spirit is about, right? So if you want to mind what the Spirit is about, you want to be about what the Spirit is about, right? And so you could write these verses down. We'll get to them in the next few weeks. But these are places that say, this is what the Spirit's about. If you want to mind the Spirit or set your mind on the Spirit or walk by the Spirit, this is what the Spirit's about. Verse 14. So next week we'll be on verse 14. Sonship. We're sons of God. We're daughters of God. We belong to Him. You are His child. You're not on your own. But He's adopted you into, into His family. These are the kinds of things that we should set our minds on that will begin to change how we walk. It'll begin to change how we live, how we live out the righteous requirements of the law. The other place we see what the Spirit brings to mind is verse 15 and 16. It takes away, takes away our fear of rejection. It takes away our fear of, 
uh, rejection and replaces it with that reality that we belong, that we're his children, right? So when that rejection comes, we rehearse the facts of what Jesus has done for us. We walk by the Spirit, by minding what the Spirit says, setting our minds on who the Spirit is and what he's done for us. And then verse 26 and 27 towards the end of chapter 8 is really cool. Romans 8, 26 and 27 talks about how this comes out in our prayer life. This translates then into the Spirit making us a praying people. Not to earn any favor with God, we pray because he gives us a confidence that we can come to him as our daddy that loves us. And as I mentioned earlier, the Spirit actually helps us to pray, right? We don't even know how to pray, and the Spirit helps us to pray. So these are the kinds of things that the Spirit brings our mind to. Keller also says, says it this way, that there's a combustion cycle. Um, and so I like to think about it this way, that there are these two different things that are always going on in our spiritual life, uh, playing off what he said here in Romans 8, but giving you a couple of other references to look at as well. That There's the combustion cycle in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, we've got verse 1 where it says to set your minds on your hearts on things above where Christ is seated, who is your life. So it's kind of a parallel here. Here he's saying, set your mind on the spirit. And in Colossians 3, he's saying, set your heart on the things above, on the heavenly reality of where Christ is seated and what he's done for you, right? And then just a couple verses later in Colossians 3, 5, he says, therefore put to death what belongs to your old nature right? So get rid of that sin, strain, struggle, put that away. Get rid of those addictions because you've set your heart on the reality of who you are in Christ. You see how those two things play together? That's the same kind of dynamic he's talking about here in Romans 8. Another place we see this is in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Verse 1, he says, throw off all the sin that so easily entangles you. Verse 2, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And so all those things always have to go together. Minding by the Spirit what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And then stripping away that old life, putting it aside. Putting on the new you, taking off the old you. And then finally, Galatians 5 has a similar parallel. Galatians 5, 24 and 25. 24 says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the sinful nature, right? We're, we're killing off the old us. Verse 25 says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So more of that walking analogy, right? So it's this combination of listening to the Spirit and what he would say to us about who you are in Christ, stripping away the old habits, the old you, the old sin. That's what it looks like in the Christian life. We, we trust again and again this new reality, this new identity we've been given. We rehearse the facts of what Jesus has done for us. There's now no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Because of that, you put away the old you. You get rid of the old habits, not to impress him, not to get him to forgive you, but because he's forgiven you. And that's what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. The picture that I, again and again, keep going back to is the picture that John Lynch gives of how we we often think, I've got to fight through my sin to get to Jesus. If I could just get rid of my sin, then God would be happy with me and I could get back good with Jesus, right? I hear people talk about that all the time. When in reality, the gospel is Jesus broke through your sin to come to you. And he's with you, no matter what. And his arm around you. And and he's going to say, we'll work on the sin together. Yeah, let's get rid of that together. You don't have to get rid of it to get to him. He broke through. He took all the penalty of your sin upon himself on the cross. He gives you his righteousness. He's adopted you. He's with you. He loves you. 
knowing that, remembering that, living that out is what it means to walk by the Spirit. The last thing we see is we should expect power in the Spirit. We see this in verses 9 through 11. We should expect power. God is doing a new thing in our life. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So he gave a qualifier there, right? Which is kind of scary for some of us. We're like, oh no, well, am I in or am I in? Am I out? I don't, I don't know. And you might have been given some of these weird teachings growing up where, where you were taught you only have the Holy Spirit if, if you've shown some kind of strange display of that, right? Um, I would say the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to, right? The Holy Spirit is, is God and, and he can work through us in, in really spectacular, socially strange ways we see sometimes in the New Testament. But here are the signs that the Holy Spirit is in you. In Ephesians 1, Paul makes it really clear that if you have confessed and believed this word of the gospel, then he puts the Holy Spirit in you right then. That's how you get the Holy Spirit, by trusting in Jesus. And then there's this second display of power that begins working itself out in the rest of your life. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 5. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Because of what Jesus has done for you, you begin to actually love other people. That is resurrection power. That is Holy Spirit miracle at work in your life. That you would be nice to people. That you would forgive people. That you would be patient with people. That you would have joy in a a broken world that doesn't deserve our joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. And the Spirit's given to you when you trust in Jesus. So just to clarify that, so that gives context here. You're not waiting for some other second blessing. You're not waiting for some other display of the Spirit. As I said, God God can do whatever he wants to. I I believe that God can work other miracles. But the big miracles are faith in Jesus and the transformation of our character. Those are the, the big two, okay? All the other ones are secondary. All the other ones, really, when you see Jesus healing people, those are signs to point to his ability to take away your sins, the healing is secondary, that the forgiveness of sins is primary. And so he goes on here and says, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. How do you know if the spirit dwells in you? If you're trusting in Jesus for your sins. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The older you are, the more you understand this verse, Right? The older we are, the more our body is dead. It gets deader and deader. Is that proper grammar? It gets deader and deader as we get older and older. And so our body is dead, but the spirit in us is life. And it's actually a a blessing in a weird way. It enables us to see more and more that the life, life is not found in my flesh. The more my flesh wastes away, the more I'm forced to reckon with the reality that life is only in the spirit. So he says, though though your body's dying, spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Is he talking about when we die, we'll get resurrection bodies and go to heaven? Yeah, probably. I mean, the rest of Romans 8, he's going to talk about we're longing for our bodies to be freed 
uh, and be transformed and be renewed. Just remember, depending on where you come from, kind of Christian teaching-wise, a lot of you may have only heard half of it, right? Like you've heard um, that our bodies are broken and we'll go to heaven. And so you kind of imagine like care bears and you're floating around and disembodied spirits or something, right? I mean, this is all heading towards, as he's going to make clear in the rest of Romans 8, we're all headed towards a renewal of creation, right? Heaven comes down, the earth is restored. Somehow, it's going to be a physical world, yet a world without sin. And we don't even fully understand what that looks like, right? But that's where things are going, glorified bodies. So it's not a doing away with of our bodies, it's a transforming of our bodies, a resurrection body, a glorified body. Um, And so you can ask me about that afterwards if you want to, but here I think he's saying, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise you. And the logic is, because that resurrection power dwells in you through the Spirit, you will also be raised. But Paul makes it pretty clear that we enjoy that resurrection power now. And we should expect that power now. A transformative power, again, to help us walk by the Spirit. Do you expect that kind of miraculous power in your life? Are you just kind of like shuffling along, not really expecting to change? God wants to change you. He, he wants, by his miraculous Holy Spirit power, to teach you to have joy, to, to teach you to have patience with other people, to teach you to love people the way that God loved him. That's what the Spirit is up to, and we should expect that kind of power. I was thinking about how hard it is to chop a tree down by your own strength. I, I have an axe, I have a saw, and I also have a chainsaw. And I have to tell you, the chainsaw is my favorite tool <laughs> because there's, there's power there, Right? And this is just a a measly mechanical illustration, right? I mean, the resurrection power we have by the Holy Spirit, of course, far supersedes any machine that we could build. But the question is, are you just sawing on the log with your dull blade by your own flesh, by your own strength? Are you expecting and depending on the Holy Spirit power that God has placed in you by what Jesus has accomplished? Because he loves you and he's adopted you as your son, as his son, as his daughter. Are you expecting that Holy Spirit power to be made a reality in your life? It will, it will grow in us. A couple of verses where Paul talks about this power. One is in context of Romans, right? Let's look at Romans first. Romans chapter 6, we saw this a few weeks ago. In Romans 6, 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, right? So there's a sense in which when we trusted Jesus, we were baptized, it's this acting out of death and resurrection that we go through. And he says, so the old us died, right? And there's a new us that's come to life. He says, we were buried, therefore, with with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's that walking uh, terminology again. So the resurrection power is to help you walk out your new life. You died with Christ, you're given the Holy Spirit, resurrection power to help you live a new life. Do you expect that resurrection power to work in you? So that's just where Paul was a couple of chapters ago. In Philippians, he says it this way, in Philippians 3.9, he says, I I desire to be found in him, in, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So Paul, again, laying out that gospel, that good news. It's not by me and my keeping the law. It's, it's through Christ and what Christ has done for, him, for me. That's the resurrection uh, life or the righteousness that I want to have. And he goes on and he says, 
This righteousness comes from God and depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. So this is, this is where it gets crazy, right? There's this resurrection power at work in Paul where, where he says, God can actually use my sufferings to enable me to experience resurrection power, to know what it's like to depend on Jesus. And this is where the, the future resurrection and the present resurrection come together. Because I know that death has no hold on me, I can live through suffering now. Now, that's easy for me to say from up here, right? I twisted my ankle this weekend, and I've at times you know, cried like a baby over it. But when we, when we go through suffering, there's a sense in which we grieve, and it hurts. We're going to get to that in Romans 8. It says later in Romans 8, we groan, we long to be freed from the suffering. Yet the promise of resurrection power in the future and the reality of resurrection power now enables us to walk by faith continue to love other people to say, yeah, it's a broken world, but God's plan for me is to be in this broken world just like it was for Jesus. He sent me into this broken world where I will suffer, and so therefore I'm sharing in Jesus' sufferings. I'm, I'm walking along with big brother Jesus, and I'm going through the same kind of things he went through. Of course, what he went through is way bigger than what I'm going through, but he's going to use my suffering f- for his glory by his resurrection power. It transforms how we live in, in the, the crummy day-to-day broken world that we live in. Do you expect that kind of resurrection power to show up in your life? I want to encourage you that I'm, I'm a real person just like you, right? When I'm cut, I bleed. When I twist my ankle, I cry. I didn't actually cry, but I did whine a lot, right, babe? Um, it's like swelling up like a balloon right now. I need to go elevate it. But we can learn to trust that God is at work, even in our sufferings, even in our sickness, even in our dying, decaying bodies, even when things all go wrong that God can, can turn those things for, for his glory. And we know that because we've rehearsed the facts. That Jesus died for you. He loves you. So if he loves you, as Paul's going to say later in, in Romans 8, if, if he even gave you his own son, how can you worry about anything else? How much more will, will he continue to show that love for you, transform you into new life? As I was thinking about that, picture that I saw in these action movies again and again of of people yelling at someone when they're dying or when they're dead that they wanted them to breathe again, that they wanted them to come back to life. It kind of made my mind remember this old weird Old Testament story in Ezekiel. I don't know if you spend a lot of time in Ezekiel reading the prophets in, in the Old Testament, but in Ezekiel, there's this really weird vision that Ezekiel, the prophet of God, is given. Ezekiel's taken by God somehow in this vision, and he walks over dead bones, and God says, Ezekiel, can these dead bones live? Ezekiel's like, only you know, God. I don't know, you know, I don't know what's going on here. And God says, prophesy to the bones, these dry, clattering bones. Prophesy that they may live. And Ezekiel says, okay, Lord. And he speaks to the bones. Rise up. God told me to tell you, rise up, live. And you know what? Flesh starts to grow on the bones. Creepy story. They start to like come back together. They, they start to have bodies, yet they still don't have breath. They still don't have life in them. So the second step comes and God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the wind. Prophesy to the breath. It's interesting. In Greek and in Hebrew, the word breath and wind 
and spirit are the same word. You just kind of have to know by context which one he means, right? So God says, prophesy to the wind or or to the spirit or, or to the breath that it would come in and give life. So he does. He prophesies. Oh, wind, oh, breath, oh, spirit, come into these dry bones and give them life. And you know what? They come back to life. The spirit moves in. The breath moves in. The wind blows in and gives them life. Jesus uses the exact same language in in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, the famous you must be born again passage, right? He says the spirit blows where it will. You can't have life unless the spirit blows in and gives you that new spirit, that new breath, that new wind, that life, that power. So my, my prayer for you, my pleading with you is the same pleading I'm pleading with myself is, is let's not rely on our flesh, whether that's in indulging our flesh, pursuing our desires, or trying to be so great that we keep the law so well that God is forced into our debt. Paul says, the flesh cannot do it. You need the Spirit. Pray that the Spirit will come and give you life. That's my prayer. Let me pray for us. God, we we pray that you would continue to transform us. God, it's kind of scary for us to even talk about your Holy Spirit. We can't see it. We don't fully understand it. And we we don't always like things that we can't control. But, But we confess that we've been trying to control our own lives and it has not worked out. And so, God, I, I pray for myself, but I think also on behalf of so many here that, that I would give up control and that your breath, your spirit would enter in, would transform us, would give us life. Help us to have life by your spirit. We believe that that's your desire. We see that that's your intent because we see what you did for us through Jesus, that he took our sin, that he gives us your righteousness. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.